When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Shehan Karunatelika won the Booker Prize for his second novel, The Seven Moons of Marley Almeida. It's a magical realist murder mystery set in the violent chaos of Sri Lanka's 1980s civil wars, and has propelled its author to the front rank of global literature, seeing him frequently compared to Rushdie and Marquez. He joined us for a live stream hosted by Hannah McInnes. So my assumption is that many and the majority of people who are listening and watching will have read the book. But I wonder if you could, for those who haven't, or for those who perhaps sort of gobbled it up when it first came out, just set the scene for us, perhaps, and, and give us the sort of feel of, of the book from, from your perspective. Well, I mean, there's many moving parts to it, but I, I really think it's a it's a pretty straightforward murder mystery um, with all the conventions of a murder mystery, except uh, I think the one twist is that the corpse is also the detective. So um, it's the dead guy who, um, yeah, who was a, quite a colourful character, war photographer, gambler, closet gay man in the late 80s. Also quite an affirmed atheist who, after what, he'd seen on the battlefield and photographed was convinced there was no cosmic purpose or scheme to it. And then is flabbergasted to wake up in the afterlife, uh, which is structured quite like a South Asian bureaucracy. And he finds out he has seven days or seven moons uh, before he has to walk into the light and go to the next whatever awaits him. And in those seven days, he decides, well, one thing he's curious about how he died and who killed him. And since he was a photographer, there were many, and he photographed for many sides in the very fairly complex Sri Lankan conflict. Uh, but also he's got a box full of photographs that no one's seen of um, things that went on in the battlefield. And he believes that if, if the world could see it, then maybe the Sri Lankan war would stop. So um, that's the basic engine of the plot, but also... You know, it's a ghost story. It's a murder mystery. It's also a love. There's a love triangle because he sort of looks back on his relationships and uh, the people close to him that he mistreated. And um, there's a bit of ghostly philosophizing. There's a there's a few jokes, uh, demons talking animals. But essentially, it's about a dead guy trying to find out why he died and look back on his life and decide how he lived and where he wants to go next. That is a lovely summary. Thank you very much. And of course, we we luckily have this wonderful amount of time to explore many of those themes in more detail. I mean, Death and the Afterlife, which you're exploring all the way through, are, are these your own thoughts about the afterlife that you're sort of working out? Because you upset some conventional wisdoms, turn them on their head, and you sort of play around with others. And your afterlife is, I mean, it's not a clear set picture, is it? It's not sort of a person in white and people sitting in the clouds. It's a sort of bureaucratic nightmare and many other things. Yes, yeah, so that's the, 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 I guess, the challenge of this kind of book, because usually a ghost story, you don't meet the ghost till the third act. Uh, but this, you meet the ghost on page one, who was like, hi, I'm a ghost. And this is what happened to me. Or And which meant that I had to Imagine what the afterlife could be like or what Sri Lanka's afterlife at that point uh, would look like. And the problem is, you know, there's not many reliable accounts of it. There's a lot of imagination. There's a lot of theories. And I sort of constructed it. I don't know. I think it owes a... So I read, you know, the religious texts and philosophers and even went through near-death experiences. Uh, and a lot of them report this, this idea of the light and having a guide figure and walking towards it, read Dante and the Sandman and uh, watched a lot of horror movies, visited um, clairvoyance. I, I got lost a bit in the, in the research, as I usually do, maybe over-researched it. Uh, but in the end, 
I uh, this device of the afterlife as a South Asian or a Sri Lankan bureaucracy, it had this absurdist comedic value to it. But also it made sense to me. So it wasn't me working out my, I mean, I think people have asked me about my own personal beliefs. I think you can infer them from, from, from the book. But um, for me, it was just like, and I think it borrows it in, for instance, the idea of the seven moons. Um, it's part of Sri Lankan culture. And I've seen it in the rest of South Asia, the idea that the spirit hovers around for seven days after the death. So on the seventh day, we have arms giving, or we have a blessing or something like that. And, um, uh, so I, I borrowed from and the idea of these various demons and rebirth. It's fairly entrenched in Buddhism and Hinduism. But I also borrowed from, I guess, the Judeo-Christian view of, um, yeah, the light and what it represents. But the idea of the bureaucracy was just that we have this illusion or delusion, depending on how you want to look at it, that, you know, when when we breathe our last and we open eyes again, all will be revealed. The, the, the purpose of our life, the secrets of the universe, God will reveal herself to us. And, and it's obviously a comforting thought, but to me, it made more sense that you wake up in this um, noisy room with a piece of paper saying, go over to that counter and get it stamped. Uh, and then you go over to that counter and the person's gone to lunch and you need to have this form filled and get your ears checked before you can get your passport to the next. And And it just seemed like, it was a nice opening for a novel, but also for some reason it explained to me perhaps why Sri Lanka finds itself in the muddles and the messes that it is uh, over the last few decades. It's because there are all these restless spirits wandering around, whispering thoughts in people's ears, bad ideas, and uh, unable to get their passport stamped to the next uh, next level. Um, so I don't know if it's... Uh, it's personal beliefs. I think I just borrowed from lots of traditions. And once I had this, it just seemed like a nice enough conflict for, for the central character, but also to explain, yeah, the reason for the Sri Lankan condition as well. And also I had a lot of fun working out the rules because that's the other thing. Um, you can make up things if you like, but you need to have your rules consistent because nothing irritates me more in a novel or or, or in even a, a film with some supernatural overtones where they when they start making up rules as they go along so i think that was the big challenge figuring out what can a ghost do where can they travel and what do they spend their time doing you know i'd like to say it, it came all fully formed but this was a a real trial and error it took a good two years to kind of work out the mechanics of it but again i think during the editing process you take a lot of the details out because I realized you don't need to explain every single thing of what happens. You just need enough for the story to to make sense. Um, but yeah, I did have a lot of fun. It was frustrating, but it was good. Finally, when it made sense to me and the story kind of moved on from there, that was quite satisfying. But you you talk about the the sort of mechanics and of how you, the rules you set up, how ghosts move. I mean, and, and once you're in, you're fully in as a reader because the ghosts. You know, I don't think I'm giving too much away to people who haven't. Just the way in which they move from um, one place to another and fly with the wind, and you know, near the end, and it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece piece of imagination. Um, and just listening to you talk about the passport stamping and the floors that they go to. What is your process of conjuring this up in your mind? Because I, I know it's sort of something that you would ask of many authors, but reading this, I've never wanted to ask it more, how your imagination is just leaping around in all these places, conjuring up these images and just this extraordinary world and worlds. Well, the ghost rules were, because um, I, I thought, okay, can a ghost go anywhere, which... Didn't make sense. Otherwise, everyone, all the ghosts would be in the Maldives or Paris or somewhere. Why? And, and so the, the the ghost movement, I had to figure that one out. And I think, I don't know where I found this or whether I made it up, but the idea that you can only go where your corpse has been, which sort of made sense because that's why ghosts are either seen at their home or at, at the cemetery. So you can only go, go where your corpse has been, but also the wind. So I, I was writing in this very room uh, at three in the morning, four in the morning. These were the hours that I'd, I I keep when when I'm into a novel. And yeah, I get like winds, gusts of wind would blow past and doors would slam and you'd wonder, uh, is there someone in here telling the story to me? So this idea that the, and the ghosts, the ghosts control the wind and they can move there. But I think the main breakthrough was the notion that you can go wherever your name is spoken. So that was quite convenient for this murder mystery engine of the plot that you could um, 
So wherever someone said Mali Almeida, he he could go there and yeah. find out who was talking about him. And it's usually a suspect in his murder case. And that not only was it a convenient device, it also made sense to me that that's why that, that you die a second death, if you like, uh, when the last person on earth says your name, when the last person remembers you, which is why ghosts don't seem to last more than two or three generations, uh, or they're very, very ancient. They've been around for a long time. So these are all stuff that you borrow from collected ghost stories, from folklore, from from horror movies. But I think those were the three crucial rules. Um, I made a bunch more, which you know we left out. What what ghosts can raise the temperature, control insects. There was a lot bunch of them, but I think just kept down to the. And this 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 made sense, and also then the hierarchy of what the some ghosts want to forget the past and just usher more souls into the light. The others are saying, no, you've got to go and dig up the past and, and avenge it uh, wherever there was injustice. So this is also, I mean, it's, it's a thinly veiled metaphor for Sri Lanka and it's grappling with the ghosts of its past, because that's been a constant debate and it goes on today, uh, whether what we do about our problematic past, do we examine it or what we tend to do is say, well, that happened a long time ago. No point dredging that stuff up. Let's just move on. So I think that's the central metaphor of Seven Moons as well. Uh, Mali Almeida is presented with that option. Either forget about your life, it's gone, move into the light, or really examine it and uh, see if you can write some things that went wrong. But yeah, all this stuff came later. I think uh, it's once you had the mechanics of them moving around and then they started talking to each other, that's when you realise what the book was really about. In terms of that interrogating the past and him trying to work out, you know, sort of uh, move on or or stay and, and change things, do, do you think there's some power that you have, he has the power as a photographer to examine, to interrogate, to keep examining and interrogating do you compare that to the power of a writer of novels such as this one in in going back and describing these stories? Do you feel that people can learn lessons from that? Is that part of the process of of grappling with facing up to the past? Well, you don't think about this stuff, and when you're when you're writing it, like well, I certainly don't. I I don't think of what it's saying about Sri Lanka or if there's a political message. In the end, like that's the thing I've been asked about. But I was just thinking, can I make this murder mystery work? Because it's a very difficult thing uh, to to make a to set up the suspects and then set reversals and work within the psychology. So I was just trying to make that work and make make the spiritual and also. The original title for this novel was Chats with the Dead, and it was really Mali Almeida going around uh, the afterlife and um, interrogating some of the spirits who, um, uh, you know, the unsolved murders of the late 80s, of which there were plenty. And uh, so most of the ghosts are based on real cases or, you know, the slightly fabricated ones. So I, I wasn't trying to write a State of the Nation novel. And also... To be fair, if you want to read about the late 80s, there's plenty of, you know, properly researched journalistic works and historical uh, works and and so on. And I, I'd say, you know, my analysis, political analysis is quite shallow at best. I don't, you know, I talk about the various factions, LTT, the Marxist JVP, the 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 STF and the foreign influences. But I, the analysis is just basically saying they're all a bunch of bad guys and each one has their own agenda. But I do think with, with fiction, and also mind you, this is a book with talking animals and demons and all of that. It, it does have the effect that, especially with the younger readership, they will, you know, they're curious about it because I, I've met a lot of like younger readers at uh, coming to events saying that, uh, you know, our parents don't talk. We know that things happened in 83 and 89, but our parents don't talk about it. They're reluctant to talk about it. We're not really taught it in schools. And this has led us down, because the information's out, it's all there on the internet. Um, you know, this period has been fairly well documented. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's what the writer, the fiction writer can do is, uh, yeah, get people thinking about that period and, and looking at the past. I mean, I don't know. I I'm quite skeptical about the role of the fiction writer and how much difference it actually makes. But I think in this, at least if the next generation has the ability to face the past, which, you know, my generation and the previous one doesn't seem to have, have done or learned from those mistakes, I think that could be a victory. But like I say, you don't think about this stuff when you're writing. You're just trying to make the story work. But um, 
hopefully, I mean, I'm seeing lots more Sri Lankans writing about our history and about the war. And I would like to see more stories coming out of the war now that we've had a sufficient passage of time. You know, people asking, what about the present? You know, Sri Lanka's going through 2022. It was on the verge of collapse. Are you going to write about that? But I think there's enough conflict in our past. By the time I get to 2022, it might be 2042. There's there's enough to really unpack in, in Sri Lanka's past. And while journalists do go back there, I think maybe it is the fiction writer and the filmmaker who can who can go back and at least even in a fantastical way, bring these stories back to life and get people talking about them. I do. I mean, and I do feel that this this novel does that sort of incredibly well. And, and it is a backdrop, but it weaves its way throughout the entire the story and the stories, everything that is going on. You know, as a reader, I feel that you learn a huge amount. And one thing that perhaps reflects your own experience, I think I've heard you saying, is that the central characters describe themselves as being in this sort of safety blanket in Colombo, this sort of horrible war of being fought a bus ride away from here, which is um, your words and not mine. And the characters are at an after party. And I've heard you say that that's your personal experience at that time. Yes. If you look at my first novel, A Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, that was two drunks trying to find this missing cricketer who disappeared. And But that my, my aim there was to try and write a novel about Sri Lanka that didn't mention the war at all. And it's just about two guys who just watched cricket and drank Arak while the war raged. And this was sort of a metaphor for, for Colombo and what we did, because the war went on for 30 years, most of my lifetime, and we just got on with life and found distractions. And uh, it's only later that I think I was able to process that guilt because you... You then, I made friends with people who'd grown up in Jaffna, in Trincomalee, in the war zone. Uh, my wife grew up in the plantations during the JVP uprising. I had quite a harrowing experience there. And like, when you think about that and you think about how sheltered you were in Colombo, and um, even in recent times when the country's been going through economic collapse, you know, last December, we had a power crisis, uh, a petrol crisis. But yeah, the, the lights were on and uh, Christmas was being celebrated in Colombo. And uh, you'd think, where where is this economic crisis? So this idea that the capital is able to insulate itself from the horrors was something, I mean, I think it's there in both novels. But in this, in the case of Mali Almeida, I suppose this was a character who um, decided, could have lived a comfortable middle-class existence, but decided to go out to the war zone. And I was quite interested in why, what would make someone do that. And I think the explanations come in the fact that one is just ego. He was very, very good at, at taking photographs and um, he, he, as he says, being in the wrong place at the wrong time with a camera. Uh, but also he was a gambler who uh, calculated the odds. But I think crucially, as a closet gay man, uh, he couldn't express himself uh, in, in Colombo, uh, certainly in the late 80s. And um, he would go to these dangerous places so he could he could be himself. So I, th I suppose Mari Almeida was a braver, more idealistic, maybe slightly naiver version of what I would have hoped to have done. Because I think, like most of Colombo, I distracted myself with uh, yeah cricket and music and whatever else was going on. And um, yeah, you, you have... Because you don't, th we didn't know the war was going to end, and I quite believed that it is a conflict that would go on all my life. And um, so I think, yeah, that's certainly quite overt in in the Seven Moons, where they talk about them having a party, having an after party, and uh, dis discussing what the rest of the country is suffering. And this was Mali Almeida's motivation that he was his photographs were going to show the Colombo bubble what was happening and show the world. And um, of course, he, he paid with his life for that. But it seems to be always in our part of the world. It's the journalists that tend to take these risks to bring the truth to people and end up uh, paying the highest price. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, 
three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. You talk about bringing the truth to people and you also mentioned a younger, the younger generation saying to you that they don't learn about these things in school so much. Similarly, perhaps that's why you explore the role that colonialization played because you you explore this a couple of times um most most prominently for me when um you, you, the dead priest who who Marley is talking to is saying you know who do you blame for this mess the colonials who screwed us for centuries or the superpowers that are screwing us now and i'm interested to hear from you this sort of conversation that comes back and forth in the book who, who is to blame and he he shouts in Marley's face we have fucked this all up ourselves a few times but it feels something very important for readers to understand the part that colonization played in all of this and perhaps continues to do and isn't still talked about as much as it should be yes i suppose that conversation is now happening in the west and um we were certainly taught so i i mean i'm guessing i'm i'm talking about what we were taught in schools we were taught about the ancient kings 2000 years ago all the monuments and the irrigation works they built uh, ancient wars we were certainly taught about the the colonial period but probably a quite a airbrushed version of it uh and but recent history not much at all and um even yeah so for the younger generation at least there's more resources now and i'm seeing um yeah just on on youtube and all there are ex- explorations of this thing but i mean it doesn't really go i i think in the first book i talk about cricket and the colonial legacy in this one yeah you have that moment with the priest talking about the different i mean sri lanka's always been uh, at the center of some sort of historical journey and uh, and we we trace our history not just the colonial period but going back to the romans and the persians and and all of that and he uh, and i think what i was getting at was also with each catastrophe in sri lanka this common refrain happens well it's a foreign conspiracy it's a foreign conspiracy to destabilize this uh, these these attacks were planned by and it's always this yeah these nefarious foreign elements and look i'm playing to that stereotype in the book in the book also there's a lot of dodgy foreign uh, elements circling around and especially with mali but i think look we celebrated 75 years of so called independence uh, just this year and um I don't know for my generation I mean and this depends who you ask I'm sure if you ask my dad's generation they'd have a different opinion but for me I'm like well now it has to come a time where we take responsibility because uh, we know what Ceylon well I hear about what Ceylon was in the 50s and 60s it was this place of immense potential and yet it seems to then it embroiled itself in this 30 year war and even after the war ended we found ourselves 10 years later economic collapse so i mean i write with a real sense of disappointment when i say about these things and um personally i mean I, I, that's what the demons also expressing that um, you know you can blame it on outside people but maybe it's more useful to take responsibility for it and uh, i'm not saying the demons are speaking uh, my opinion but uh, you know i'm i can't find too much disagree there that um, certainly you know you can look at the colonial period and you can look at the present period it's not like we are, we may celebrate independence but we are still now beholden to the IMF to China to India to the various foreign investors and interests that are operating in our country so um yeah i think as much as we need to examine our past i think what the bruce book is expressing is that yeah we should take responsibility for for our tragedies and uh, ensure that they never happen again and the first step to that is by taking responsibility If um Marley um I don't want to give too much away but I think it's fair to say that until quite close to the end of the book expresses a pretty dim view of humans and humanity you know we have these messages there is no animal more savage than a human you know forget demons it is the living that we should fear as I say don't want to give too much away but nearing the end of the book there's more hope uh, and more a feeling of more positivity that humans do have a capacity for for better things i wonder what view of humanity you sort of hope the reader would take away yeah well it i think again both books tend to the first book is a guy drinking himself to death uh, right but it's uh, it, it 
I think they both sort of lean towards some sort of redemption or some sort of hope. And um, again, I don't usually know where I'm, where the book's going to end thematically or plot wise when I start out and then I reach there. And um, I felt, you know, it's, it's 300 pages of quite gruesome detail of terrible things we're doing to each other. So the idea, and so Mali's worldview that there can't be a purpose or a God or uh, much hope for humanity is confirmed in most of the books. So I guess his arc, his personal arc and his spiritual arc, where he does find some level of hope, I think, um, yeah, I maybe that's my sensibility. I, I am a cynical, miserable person most of the time, but I do tend towards hope. And uh, I think, yeah, maybe most of us do, because also Sri Lanka is, we're always on the brink of, a great success. And even at, at the moment, like, so since people ask me what Sri Lanka is like now, I say it's better than it was 10 months ago. And um, the, the queues have stopped and the shortages have stopped and there's there's money coming in. And now there's, again, this optimism. And, you know, I, I can't help but always bring cricketing metaphors. It's the same. The, the team will lose on a trot, but then suddenly they'll produce this magical performance against Australia or England or India and just do something mesmerizing. And that fills us with hope and uh, that seems to be how we exist here we have these moments where we think okay now we're going to be unstoppable and then uh back down and um i think i wanted to end end it on one of those those high notes again without giving too many spoilers um but i think yeah you can't help but have a grim view of humanity especially if you're serving the 1980s in sri lanka but uh, there's always room for hope. And I think hopefully there's enough, there's enough of it in the book. So it doesn't make it too much of a, uh, a dour experience to read. No, I mean, I also found uh, very interesting going through exploring the relationship with animals all the way through this um, sort of realization of animal sentience. It felt to me animals have feelings. I mean, there's a wonderful moment, which I just felt like so many of your observations just it's like a bell going off in your head. But, you know, one of them is everyone claims nonviolence, except when it comes to mosquitoes or rats or roaches, then it's killed or be killed. And, you know, animals in, in, in the novel have feelings and voices. And Marley sort of reflects at the end, it's a good thing humans only converse with them when they're dead or they wouldn't stop complaining. And again, I just enjoy, and you know, to hear your reflections on this working through of perhaps the idea that humans have this wheels this entirely unfair power over animals and the reckoning day will come yeah so I, I, this was borrowed i think from so in sri lanka it's uh it's uh, it's mahayana buddhism i think in in tibet the tibetan buddhism theravada i think that was where i was i might have mixed those terms up actually um but the tibetan buddhism has this pantheon of humanity gods demons hungry ghosts animal spirits and uh, it sees the, and that was looking at these Mandela's uh, when I was uh, traveling there, that just seemed the kind of universe that I wanted to create. Whereas I think the Buddhism has practiced in, in Sri Lanka, it's more about the self and the mind and um, less looking at this, yeah, at the other realms of spiritualities. So, and look, also, we have this notion that humanity is the highest form of birth and that uh, and we kind of look down on. And this maybe justifies cruelty as well, um, that we see animal spirits as lower. But um, I also figured that each being each a cat doesn't think of itself as wanting to be human. A cat thinks of itself as the human. Anyone who owns a cat knows that as the center of the universe and that each each being does consider it from the universe from their their perspective. And so there is there is a dead leopard that recurs. And I do believe one of the true heroes of the book and uh, many debates with editors, with readers saying, you know, well, what are these talking animals doing in there? But I said, no, the dead leopard has to stay. The dead leopard is the is the centerpiece. And then there's a few other talking animals there as well. But um, yeah, just the idea. And I think some of the wisest passages come from from the animal spirits, some are uh, they don't get many lines, but I think they get some quite wise one-liners and just talking about, and this, these are themes that I think Kurt Vonnegut, who is I, I've cited as a hero, talking about um, not just meaninglessness and all that, but just how humanity 
civilization is going to destroy itself and uh, there's nothing we can do about it and we have all uh, and i kind of liked how kurt vonnegut can do that in the space of a, quite a comic enjoyable story a, often hilarious story and um yeah so that's that's where i had these talking animals with these bits of wisdom uh, but i do really think they they form the soul of the book and also yeah, I think I'm I'm down with the Tibetan view of the universe that we're, we're not the center, and uh, yeah, we could be done very soon. And the cockroaches have been here for much longer. They probably believe they own the planet, and they could be justified. And so, yeah, I couldn't agree more that the animals have some of the most pertinent one-liners. And also, I'm well, just delighted to hear from you that you kept the leopard in because I completely agree; it really stays with me. And the leopard has some very wise things to say at, at, at the end, but no spoilers exactly. At the start, I mentioned that we should hear a little bit about the life of, of the book itself. There's so much to explore within the stories, within the pages, but um, the book itself has, has had a w wonderful story. Obviously, winning one of, if not the most prestigious of prizes. Anything in your mind while you're writing that has this dream or that this sort of thing, that that would happen, that you would end up winning the booker oh god uh, you, you don't I, I i follow i follow the prizes i follow the booker the pulitzer the oscars you know that's it gives us a curated list of things that were we might find interesting so i i certainly followed it throughout um but look you're writing you're sitting in colombo writing a novel about a left arm leg spinner who played for in the 1980s for sri lanka or you're writing about a war that not many are talking about, it's not really on the radar. So you, you're thinking one step at a time. First, you're thinking, how am I going to finish this very complicated story? Can I make it work? Uh, and then you think maybe I can get it published in India. That's a, that's the hub for, for the subcontinent. And that's a victory. And most Sri Lankan writers will settle for that victory. And then if you're, if you want to dream harder, you think, okay, can I get it out in the UK and the US? Uh, but winning these big prizes, um, yeah, I didn't think the second. I thought maybe my ninth book might have. You know, I was uh, I was in in it for the long game, and I certainly with this one because I, I wrote my first one about ten years ago. And uh, when you write your first novel, you're not thinking. I mean, maybe quite ambitious, confident writers think about their third novel by then. But I certainly wasn't. I was like, I'll be glad if I can get one published. So then. When it came to my second trick, by that time, also I'd got married and had kids and life got in the way and, and all of that. But when I finally came across the story, it took a while to unravel because figuring out what the afterlife is, un unraveling also the, the complex political landscape of Sri Lanka. So it it took a while and uh, there was a time where it looked like it, it wouldn't find a UK publisher. It, uh, India, India was quite enthusiastic because I think Chinaman was was a cult hit in India and they were eager to publish the follow-up. But um, yeah, there was a moment where it didn't look like there would be a UK publisher and then um, uh, sort of book stepped up and we edited it. So so you don't dare dream that, that high. You don't, uh, you, you think... Um, well, if it comes out in the UK, that'll be a victory and I'll move on to the next one. And that's sort of where I was in 2022. I knew it'll come out in August. And meanwhile, look, we were preoccupied with um, with the collapse and the struggle and um, storming the president's house uh, palaces. And uh, in the midst of all this and all the petrol queues is when I got the Booker long list. Uh, and, and I remember another thing like... Um, George Saunders won for Lincoln in the Bardo around, I think, 2019, 2018, when I was in the middle of the book where I just decided to abandon the third draft and start again. And a talking ghost book won, won the booker. And uh, I was like, well, there's no room for any more. To and, and, and for a while, I, I, I avoided it. But then you know, I ordered a copy. And of course, it's a masterpiece. And I read it and I, I couldn't help but be inspired by it. Uh, because one thing I knew, okay, my talking ghost book is very different to this. Uh, and uh, I was just in awe of how just because there's attributed dialogue, I think there's no description in, in Lincoln in the Bardo and to be able to construct some and I thought, look, I'm not going to construct something as meticulous, but maybe I can have a go at something semi ambitious. So it ended up inspiring me. And as do many of the yeah 
booker winning or shortlisted books or some, sometimes I, my favorite might be in the long list and may not make it there. Um, so it's always been an aspirational thing, but I never, I just, when I, when I heard about the booker long list, I thought, okay, fine. The book is going to get reviewed in the UK. That's great. And I was happy with that. And so, yeah, I've just allowed myself to be happy at each level. And I was quite happy with the shortlist until, and I thought, okay, someone else's name gets read out and I'll get to have a holiday and go back to writing. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I certainly have not got back to writing. That's, uh, uh, yeah. I know no one wants to hear you complain about these things, but uh, yeah, I, I, I did some writing this week for the first time, but yeah, I've been doing a lot of talking, but you know, it's been a fantastic ride and um, yeah. But this is not something I would dare think about or anticipate or, or dream about. But yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's, so it's been obviously an incredibly busy time for you because, yeah, as the winner, you're doing lots of things like this and flying around the world and talking at literature festivals and things like that. I mean, you mentioned George Saunders as, a, as an inspiration to you. And in fact, we met, didn't we, at uh, his talk in London. I wonder who else, and you've mentioned um, some other people throughout um, this discussion, but who else are your big heroes, perhaps, or who you draw from? Who's, who, who's inspired you, perhaps someone who inspired you to become a writer? Well, I think you can't go past the South Asian greats and certainly the Sri Lankan greats, because I remember growing up in the 1980s, there wasn't a Sri Lankan section in the bookshop. Um, There's barely a South Asian section. Um, you'd get local books, but they were on you know a shelf in the corner, not next to the uh, the big bestsellers. Um, and I, I'd often wonder why can't a Sri Lankan or South Asian book be up there next to the Stephen Kings and the Jackie Collins and uh, whatever was Sidney Sheldon's, whatever was on the bestseller list. And that changed, I think, in the 90s. I mean, one, I discovered Midnight's Children, which is obviously much earlier than the 90s. But then in the 90s, I think South Asia, you had Rohitan Mystery and Vikram Seth and Arundhati Roy later. But I think for Sri Lankan writers, certainly, Firstly, Undachi wrote Running in the Family, which uh, was the first time I'd seen Sri Lanka referred to uh, and referred to so poetically. Uh, but then Ramesh Gunasekara was nominated for the Booker, I think, for Reef. And um, Shyam Selvarudure wrote Funny Boy, uh, which was a coming of age, gay, a gay story. It was quite groundbreaking for the 90s. But I think the person who really inspired me was a gentleman called Karl Muller, who was also writing around uh, the early 90s. But one thing he wrote about the Berger community, which is uh, the descendants of the Dutch, Portuguese and English colonizers who, you know, the only community not to have a separatist movement or, or terrorist movement in our country. And they're, the kind of stereotype is they're kind of happy-go-lucky um, and, um, you know, eating, drinking people, as they say. And Karl Muller wrote about this community and he, of which he's part of. And it was just, yeah, them getting drunk and getting into fights and mm, having affairs with each other's spouses. But it was written in this exuberant, very Sri Lankan tone. And I think that and what Salman Rushdie did, I mean, that's what Midnight Children did for a lot of us. We, uh, Because it was a revelation to know that you didn't have to, when we read about our part of the world, it would be E.M. Forster, Passage to India. It was always that, that seemed to be the how English was written. And to then realize that you could write how it's spoken and how it's in our part of the world and tell our own stories. So I think that at least gave me confidence to like think that I could attempt at least writing short stories. Uh, and then, of course, there have been many South Asian uh, success stories. And also, I think the golden age of Pakistan writing was when I was writing my first novels. So Mohammed Hanif, Mohsin Hamid, Kamala Shamsi, H.M. Nakvi. So I think that's regionally, it just allowed me, and that's why I... I find it hard to think that I'd write about anything other than Sri Lanka, um, even though there's, I've lived in other places. Uh, it just seems like there's an abundance of stories here, abundance of conflicts and abundance of absurdities. And that's why even my short story collections, they're all set in, in Sri Lanka. So I think those were the main uh, 
regional influences, but I think in a wider sense, the few names that I mentioned, the sort of, I don't know if you call them absurdist, but yeah, Kurt Vonnegut, um, George Saunders, Douglas Adams, uh, the Hitchhikers has so much wisdom to share with you. And it's such a grim story, but it's such a, such a riot and Margaret Atwood, Tom Robbins, but also the magical realist, which, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say, because my book's been compared to called magical realism, which puts you in the company of Garcia Marquez and Bolaño and Manuel Puig and Bulgakov. And these are the, these are the greats. And um, so, yeah, I, I read a lot of uh, all, I guess, obvious um, influences, but I'm also a big fan of the pulp tradition. You know, I love horror movies and, you know, read a lot of Stephen King and Neil Gaiman and James Herbert. And um, so I think they all kind of mash up and get there. Like if you look at the Mahakali, the demon in this, in Seven Moons, probably the universe's dark heart, it certainly borrows from Hindu mythology of the goddess Kali, um, Sri Lankan ghost folklore, the Mahasona, the the head of a bear, body of a lion, this these creatures. But also it owes a lot to Hellraiser, Clive Barker's Hellraiser, which I read a lot as a teenager, the, the souls being devoured and peeping out under the skin. And um, so I think, uh, yeah, the influences vary from the so-called highbrow and exotic to, um, to fairly kind of pulp genre uh, influences as well. It's interesting you say a big mashup. I mean, that's exactly what I think that, you know, serves it so well and is part of its uh, unique brilliance is perhaps that it is a big mashup of of different influences all sort of weaving their way through. One of the things you said when you won the booker was that you might think again writing a gay protagonist. Is that still the case a few months later? Or uh, why why would you perhaps not, not feel that it was you know something that is perhaps you feel it was something you would change no i don't think i changed i i just say think again would mean i would be maybe a bit more cautious because i didn't think uh, uh, you know 2013 14 when the character emerged it was just yeah okay of course he's he's gay he's a closet game and this explains everything and i just went in there uh thinking okay i just aware that you've got to make it play and you've got to make it authentic and convincing but I'd just be a bit more cautious now. That doesn't mean I wouldn't attempt to write from the... Because I'd like to, obviously, write from the point of view of uh, characters unlike yourself. And I think both Mali Almeida and Ouija from the first book are, are very different to my... And that's that's sort of appeal of doing it. And I think, yeah, I've made hints that I might want to write from the point of view of a female protagonist. And uh, are you allowed to do that and all of that? I mean, these debates happen periodically and i think it's it's uh part of the conversation now i would just say now you just realize that if you if you are doing that if you are describing or adopting the viewpoint of a character very different to yourself that you do need to be respectful and do your research and be aware that if you get it wrong that uh yeah you're gonna have to you're gonna get slammed for it and um so i i guess i wasn't thinking at that time the conversation wasn't as loud as it is now um, so that was the only reason, but I don't think I, I don't think I could change, go back and change his sexuality. I, I'm just not sure how that would work. It's possible, but I don't think it's necessary. Um, yeah, so I think that that was the only the comment that now that it seems quite glaring that what what gave you the right to do do this, and I, I didn't think anyone would ask me that because I thought that's what that's what novelists do, that's what storytellers do, that we try and imagine the world from someone else's eyes. You, you still feel presumably, that that is the role of novelists, to imagine the world through a whole vast array of people's eyes. Certainly. Yeah, I do. I do. And um, let's see how the next few uh, books turn out. But um, yeah, I've, in the short story, certainly, I've adopted very different viewpoints. And um, yeah, um, I've tried to kind of describe the experience of, say, Sri Lankan maids in, in the Middle East, um, you know, as far removed from my experience. But again, I think if you, and, you know, one set in a prison uh, and talking about the prison population, and I just think, yeah, you need to do your homework and you need to, yeah, do your research and make sure it works on the page. Uh, but yeah, certainly, I, I just I just made that comment because I was asked that a lot. Um, and um I said when I after I wrote it, I did get, you know, friends of mine, you know, gay men to read it, uh, gay men from that period of the 80s to sort of just sense check and fact check it for me and just to make sure that I wasn't, yeah, 
evoking stereotypes. Though I think there is a fair amount of stereotypes in this promiscuous gay that um, that Mali Almeida is. But um, I don't know. I didn't get too many complaints. I mean, and I took many of the suggestions. But I think ultimately you're writing a human love story, and I think that was the main thing. It was a human at the heart of it. That's what it is. There's a love triangle there, and um, yeah, the human relationships. I describe them the, as best as. I've experienced human relationships and I've seen observed around me. Um, so no, I, I think I, you know, you don't need to ask for permission, but you do need to do it with respect and do it as well as you can. I think that's the only, only rule there is. Yeah. Really interesting. And as you say, I mean, the relationship uh, with Jackie is one that is incredible. The love triangle, just a very moving. I, I found um, relationship with her, but I don't have time to get into that because um, someone was wondering about, I mean, we've talked about the imagination, the vibrancy of it, the ghosts sort of sailing around in the wind. Do you ever imagine when you're writing these things being transferred to a screen? That's another thing I don't dare imagine, though I've been uh, <laughs> required to. Because um, I think with my first book, it got optioned a few times. And a lot of, you know, with film, there are a lot of big talkers. You'd get a call from someone who would drop a Hollywood <laughs> uh, name yeah. at you and you'd be like, oh, that person's reading my book. Wow. And then you never hear back. And, um, and so there's been a lot of, uh, yeah. So over the years I've sort of thought, okay, if the movie happens, it happens, uh, but you know, I'm not going to sit there hoping for it. But of course with this, there, there is a lot of talk about film versions and uh, yeah, I need to kind of make sense and unravel which, which to go with, but yeah, I haven't, I don't know if I'd be, I'd want to be involved. I <laughs> Even when I worked as a copywriter in advertising, I, you know, I'd like, I could write a television script, but some of them would love to go to the shoot and sit there and look through the camera lens and pick the curtains and pick the dress. And, you know, I, nothing bored me more. I just want to send off my script and then it comes back a finished movie. And that's sort of my attitude with this as well. And though I think, yes, yeah, certainly you'd, you you need a special effects budget, or I suppose you do it with animation, or you know, oh, there's plenty of ways to to capture this world. Um, but yeah, I I'm not getting my ahead of myself until yeah, you find you find a director who's got the vision and um, yeah, a producer who can make it happen. But yeah, let's see, there is talk, so something could happen. But I don't know. I've, I've re written this book four times. I'm not sure I want to sit down and work through a screenplay of it as well. And sometimes it's best. Uh, yeah, the same attitude as I had when I was an advertising copywriter. Yeah, just let the great director take it away and bring back a finished movie, I think. Yeah. So we so watch this space in terms of seeing something, but it might not be something that you have anything. So you, you're prepared as a writer to put it out into the world and relinquish control and allow a director and others to interpret it their way. You think you wouldn't feel slight element of wanting to control the, the visuals? Uh, well, that's why they pay you lots of money, I guess. Uh, that's <laughs> why you, uh, you relinquish that control. Yeah, no, look, this is all hypotheticals. Let's, let's see what happens. It's yeah. just yeah. Um, sometimes I, I look at, there, there have been wonderful examples of uh, novelists adapting their own work to much success, but there've also been cases where I felt, yeah, the novelist should have left it to someone else to do it. And um, yes, yeah, so I don't know. Never okay, say that. We won't ask you to name goodbye. anything. Um, so, no, I mean, it's, but it's very interesting. And when when we know more about whether, as you say, when it becomes not hypothetical, we'll invite you back and hear about that process of relinquishing control to, to another's interpretation. But for now, mm. I, I, I wanted to go back to something you talked about, which I found, again, incredibly interesting throughout the book, this idea of the whispers and the voices in your head, which um, I feel is, is, which I don't feel, is so often being explored. Um, the whispering in the ear that the ghosts can do to those who are living and uh, Marley wonders who is whispering in Dr. Rani's ears and who is whispering in their ears and how much of our thoughts are other people's whispers. I just wonder if you could reflect on this process that I think uh, as an author you're exploring that maybe these thoughts that are permanently in our heads, what they are, who is speaking? Is it just our minds? Is it something else? Mm. So this is, I think this stems from the second person voice or the decision to tell the story in the second person, because um, 
I started, I think I start every project in the third person and then you find a point of view character and then I ended up in the first person. But the problem I had to solve early on along with how what the afterlife looks like and how the ghosts behave and so on is what does a disembodied voice, what does it sound like? What um, And I came across the view or just arrived at the conclusion that if anything survives the death of your body, it must be the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is in the second person. It's almost like someone else telling me, oh, you should have done that. Why did you say that? And um, and I, I ended up sort of writing, just trying it out as an experiment. And before long, I had about 20 pages and I realized, okay, this. And then when I interrogated it later, I thought, okay, so who is this narrator who is saying you? Is it Mali Almeida? Is it the voice of his his conscience of his soul is it the voice of him across several births just looking on on his final thing and i think yeah that is that is mentioned in the book as well that who is the voice that uh whispers your thoughts um and i you know i think we've all had experiences where you do something and and you think we believe that all our thoughts originate from us yeah because we have yeah no other explanation to explore so we think it arises from us but there have been so many cases where you you do something you think what was i thinking what what made me do that what and sometimes you wonder is, is it someone else is someone else planting those thoughts in your head so this idea that ghosts could i mean with great difficulty ghosts can't always whisper it takes a lot of practice and all that otherwise we'd all be hearing voices but um yeah that you can influence the living by yeah, getting into their head and planting thoughts, inception style. That again, it made sense in this uh, this kind of dystopia full of bad actors making terrible decisions. Uh, that there was this sort of yeah external element to it. But yeah, Mali Mali wonders that as well. Are my thoughts, are my motivations coming from me, or are they coming from external? Uh, and yeah. The book sort of plays with that and questions who is the you, who is the you narrating and who is the you that whispers your thoughts. I think it's all fairly explicit there, but also it was an explanation of this idea that Sri Lanka's crawling with these spirits, whispering bad thoughts in people's ears. And um, I think also, look, I was brought up a Buddhist. It's only lately or since the pandemic that I've actually started a meditation practice. And uh, that's simply, that's one of the, I mean, I'm still at a very basic level, but uh, the idea that thoughts float across your mind like like clouds and uh, you you don't really need to respond to them, you know, that's something I'm still learning. Um, but yeah, I think that's where that came from. And that's why there is a lot of cloudy imagery and dream dream speaking and, and all of that in there. But yeah. Mm. There's a really interesting part of it, which I, I would love to explore with you. And definitely the idea and the sort of notion of meditation comes in. I think um, Marley even refers at one point, doesn't he, to um, not being very good at it. But uh, in terms of writing in second person voice, was that a challenge, one of the rules you have to remind yourself, are there moments where it becomes difficult to do? No, that, that's the thing. It, it flowed. And for me, like any project, you know, whether I'm writing an article, a short story or a, a full length novel is the voice. Until the voice arrives, nothing exists. And so, so it's with the third novel, I, you know, like I said, I haven't done much writing, but I did some writing in 2022 and I've got like tons of research and I've got ideas and plots and characters, but I still don't have that voice. And I know once I settle down to a writing routine, it'll arrive. But until that happens, nothing exists. The story doesn't exist. And so I think with the first book, it was that drunken uncle, the drunken Sri Lankan uncle telling this tall tale at the side of a, you know, that voice really propelled into action. And so when I, the second person, no, it wasn't difficult at all, even though, yeah, it's, there's few examples of uh, novels written in the second person, Bright Lights, Big City is the famous example. Mohsin Hamid wrote a couple of his novels, um, Reluctant Fundamentalist and 
how to get filthy rich in rising Asia. Those are in the second person. But I think uh, another big influence uh, were the choose your own adventure books that I, um, I, man, oh. I don't know if you can see that behind me. I managed to get a ton from eBay um, for a song. And I remember they were all written in the second person. They were all, you're a, you're a spy. You're, you're, you're meeting your, you're in Moscow, meeting, meeting a client. Blah, and it's, it's all the you, you, you. And, uh, if you decide to run away, if you decide to chase after the guy, turn to this page. And um, I mean, I got them. They're not as good as I remember them. Sadly, I mean, nothing is. But I remember that was my first introduction to genre fiction because there was a, there was a Western, there was a space opera, there was a horror. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I got those down quite later. But um, I think if I look back, that was a influence as well it's almost like someone else telling him the story of him waking up in the afterlife but yeah you remember That's, the choose your own adventures yeah yeah i mean yes and they still i do i do remember and they still um i think have a great uh pop, very popular today but i'm fascinated to hear um and haven't heard you say that they they were something that kind of influenced you I, the ones behind you were bought as research or they're the ones that you were reading anyway and thought actually this is where i can this is what I could do, but different. I had about five or six kicking around, which was enough. But yeah, I saw a bunch on eBay, so I bought the entire. Because yeah, the old, also the nostalgia, the old artwork. I really liked um, that eighties style of illustration, and um, yeah, I I, um, I went through. I'm trying to introduce them to my kids. So far, um, no big takers. I I can't compete with uh, Harry Potter and Wimpy Kid. But um, oh, they'll they'll come around, but yeah, I just I just think um, they they really plant these genre cues in you, and and quite ingenious uh, some of the quite thin on character and and all that, but quite ingenious plots. But yeah, this idea that I think now we've got quite immersive video games and all that, but yeah, the second person I just felt it wasn't someone describing the experience; it was someone almost instructing you how to navigate through the afterlife um but yeah those so, books are a lot yeah. of fun though still. Yeah. Really, really really interested to hear you say that i just i just finally want to ask you you said that you um it's now 11 you write between sort of you write at the hours of i think you said four and five i think you said three um and and you can't really do anything until you have that voice when you're trying to write do you have to get up anyway and sit there like it's a sort of physical activity someone recently was talking to us about mastery for the how-to academy for an event um, the New Yorker writer Adam Gotnick, and he was saying, treat creativity and writing as a physical activity. You just put yourself in front of that computer each day. Do, do you do you do that, or do you have to just wait for that voice and those characters and those ideas to come? No, no, you've got to turn up every day and, yeah, beat it down, chase it down. Um, yeah, so until I get the routine, and the routine also takes, so, yeah, waking up at four sounds uh, sounds fine, but you need to go to sleep at eight. So I don't think I'll be waking up at four tomorrow, but that's okay. Uh, it's Friday. Uh, but yeah, it requires, so that routine, and those routines take, you know, a couple of weeks to to establish. But yeah, once I'm in, in that rhythm, four to about seven, that's when the kids start waking up and the house becomes chaos. But those three hours, I get most of my writing done. And um yeah, it's certainly, and it's it's one thing physically waking up and sitting down even when you don't feel like it. But I remember not much happens for the first three four weeks, and that would used to demoralize me. But now I just know that's the process because I certainly and it's not like I'm I'm idle during that time. I might the reason why the stories or the voice is not coming. Maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I haven't read enough. Maybe I need to read stuff. That so yeah, if I aspire to be George Saunders, you read George Saunders. You you read Margaret Atwood. You read the Choose Your Own Adventures. You um, you read the stuff that you want to sound like. But yeah, and same with cinema as well. I'd kind of curate the movies I'd watch to to whatever project I'm working on. So the time is spent doing something related to the to the project. But yeah, then I find by certainly by by the second month at least some shape has emerged and uh, and then yeah then the voice once it arrives then the pages start stacking up but yeah you need you need to turn up every day and if i miss that and i yeah i do take sunday off but six days a week but yeah but also i think it's a compulsion as well because uh, 
I feel the day is wasted if I haven't read for like half an hour or written for half an hour, at least attempted to. And I think maybe that's maybe that's why I didn't become a musician because I don't feel compelled to play guitar every day. I have to force myself to do that. But I do feel compelled to write every day. And I think that's the only way it gets done. You can't sit around waiting for inspiration. I think um, I learned that from advertising. The client's turning up on Thursday. If it's Wednesday afternoon and you don't have anything, you better have something and uh, you better find some way to do it, whatever means necessary. And I think that was good. Uh, good discipline that you have to be creative on command and um, yeah. yeah so I'm yeah. looking forward to look I'm enjoying the yeah I'm about to go on tour in Australia and you know I'm not great at writing in hotel rooms I do I get a lot of reading done and ironically I play a bit of guitar because I travel with that but I don't get a lot of writing done I kind of need these this clutter around me um, but yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to in June getting into a routine and yeah at least getting some pages down so let's see well, so we can't wait to see what's next. Um, such a, a joy to talk to you. And as I said at the beginning, delve into your mind and um, could, could do so for much longer. But we better let you, I think, get to bed long past your bedtime. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us too. Oh, thank you very much, Hannah. Pleasure. This episode starred Sheehan Karunatelika and the presenter was Hannah McInnes. The producer was Nicole Wong, the editor was John Doughty, and the executive producers were me and Esme Bright. If you enjoy the show, why not take out a subscription to HowTo Plus? You'll get all of our live streams as podcasts and videos, only a small fraction of which make it onto this feed. Use the code POD50, that's all caps, P-O-D-5-0, for a half-price discount. Till next time, thanks for listening.